the key word of Ecclesiastes is vanity. The Hebrew, as we've said before, is hevel, and it doesn't mean necessarily meaninglessness, but means more some, something more like breath or vapor, that which is vanishing away and soon departing, that which you can't grasp. And so life is fleeting, life is ephemeral, ambitions are elusive, and they are fading away, as is your life. Many of us are halfway to the grave right now. Gary said, or more. Gary, one of our elder statesmen. <laughs> I'm joking. But what is your life? Peter, uh, James asked that question. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, he says, and then vanishes. I love that lyric, and all glory be to Christ, that says that very verse, uh, that very verse, you're a mist that vanishes, we are a mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. Our life is a mist, but I pray that we would be a mist, us individually and as a church that had glorified Christ while it existed on earth. Now, the problem, as I said in the first week of Ecclesiastes and mentioned a few other times, is that we live under the delusion, and I think it's ingrained in our psyche, but we tend to, as fallen creatures, and certainly as products of an American culture, live under the delusion that our lives are not vanishing, that we are not vapors, and that, in fact, quite the opposite, our lives are building to some great crescendo. Um, and then we have anti-aging, marketing, self-improvement podcasts and books and conferences and and all of this is actually communicating to our souls that we are advancing in some kind of progression towards perfection as a humanity and even as individuals which is funny because our bodies are wasting away in the meantime so all of this, I think, being in the American culture certainly assists in this delusion, but I think humans live under the delusion that our earthly, physical lives, by and large, are always advancing and improving towards some kind of ideal goal. The first week I told you about one of the most haunting concepts I've heard of in recent years called the Deferred Happiness Syndrome. And that, by way of reminder, is the common feeling that your life hasn't begun. That your present reality is a mere prelude to some idyllic future. And that this ideal is a, actually a mirage that will fade as you approach old age, revealing that the prelude that you rushed through was in fact the one to your death. Deferred happiness syndrome. I think in America, we suffer from that most poignantly. So the strategy of Ecclesiastes, with that being said, is to actually undercut my false hopes and assumptions about life so that I don't actually spend my life spinning my wheels for futile ambitions and goals. So we don't spend our life as we waste away 
rushing to some idyllic future only to find out on our deathbed that we were rushing towards the end of our earthly existence all along. Ecclesiastes is meant to haunt you with these kinds of realities. It's supposed to haunt you with the vanity of a life lived for fulfillment. We saw that in chapter 2. The preacher, Koheleth, in the Hebrew, had it all. He was smarter than you. He was more successful than you. He was more powerful than you. And he came away with a listless, vain impression of all of his efforts. And this led him to despair. And so what Ecclesiastes does for us is it, again, undercuts all of our assumptions about life and progression so as to save you, to save you from a life of stupidity and vanity and meaninglessness in life. Now, as Christians, those who have come to Christ, we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And we know we, the saints are those who are already, are people who have already turned in their meaninglessness for a life of purpose in Christ and death in Christ. Holy living and holy dying is what a saint is about. But again, Ecclesiastes is undercutting and challenging all of your false hopes about the future. And it's almost a shadow, a wraith, a specter that says, don't go down this path. There's nothing but vanity here and futility here. So Ecclesiastes is like the ghost of Christmas future from, from what's the Scrooge book? What's that book? Christmas, Christmas Carol. From Christmas Carol. Um, interesting, an interesting line. So Scrooge met the ghost of Christmas past, which showed him the past, the present, which shows him the present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And that's what Ecclesiastes is like. Interesting scene um, in this Christmas carol where the ghost of Christmas future, which was a shadowy, wraith-like figure, points to a gravestone in a graveyard and tells Scrooge to approach the gravestone. And Scrooge says, before I draw near to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Well, that was up to Scrooge, right? That was up to whether he changed his ways and reformed himself. And so I, I have the feeling that Ecclesiastes is doing that to us. The despair unto death. Is that a shadow of things that may be or things that will be in our life? Well, that was up to Scrooge, and I think that's up to us. And so we need to heed the warning of the preacher. Again, the preacher went for 
wealth, women, intellect, success, and he attained all of it. He climbed the ladder of ultimate success in life, and he came away with a feeling of emptiness and despair. And so what Ecclesiastes does is it, it walks us through all of this emptiness and despair and this meaninglessness that the preacher feels, and then it snaps its fingers and sets you right back in the pew and says, fear God now and keep the commandments. So read with me, if you would, the final words of Ecclesiastes, starting in verse 9 of chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Starting in verse 9, right here, we notice that there's a shift in language to the third person. This is not the preacher talking. This is some kind of commentator who's compiled the words of the preacher. Besides being wise, the preacher taught people knowledge, and he arranged Proverbs. The preacher sought words of delight. So it seems that Ecclesiastes was compiled by an editor. And we see something of the identity of the preacher again who wrote down all these sayings. He was wise and he arranged many proverbs. Again, that's why I feel like this is the, this is the voice of Solomon we've been hearing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember when God, when God said, what do you want? What's one thing you want, Solomon? He said, what? Wisdom. And then Solomon wrote many Proverbs as well. And in chapter 2, we see that the preacher is somebody who had more riches than anyone in Jerusalem before him. That, need, that, that I think historically needs to be Solomon. So I think this is the voice of Solomon. Which is interesting because it would explain the despair of the preacher as well. Because at the end of his life, Solomon was dragged away by his many wives to worship other pagan, pagan gods. And, and perhaps Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of a regretful Solomon who looks back on his vain life and warns you. And it's almost like we can ask, are these the things that may be or will be in our lives? That's up to you, and it's up to me. What did Solomon do? 
verse 9, he aimed for the truth in these, these sayings in Ecclesiastes. I heard a great quote. Um, there are some people, like cultural commentators, who want to stay on top of things. I think as Christians, what we want to do is get to the bottom of things, right? It's one thing to stay on top of things, the, the cultural trends and everything that's happening in the world. I'm not suggesting that we be ignorant about those things, but I want to get to the bottom of things. And Ecclesiastes is a book that gets to the bottom of things. I mean, he's talking about meaning and death, the meaning of life and death. You can't get as foundational as that. So the whole goal of Ecclesiastes has been to wake you up from your slumber, just spinning wheels in kind of a futile, vain attempt to make something of yourself without fully fearing God and keeping his commandments. Starting in verse 11, um, this commentator, this compiler kind of reflects on the effect of Ecclesiastes of the preacher's words. He says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. His words are like goads. A goad was a sharp stick that, um, that had a pointed piece of iron on the end of it. And it was used to prod cattle along. If they, if they would stop, they would, the farmer would prod the cattle along with this, with this prick or goad stick. And it's the same thing that Jesus refers to when he speaks to Saul on the Damascus Road. And he says, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks, some versions say. Interestingly enough, if an animal kicked against the goads, then the iron would only go deeper into his skin. It's almost as if rebellion against God will only lead to more pain. Certainly that was the case for Solomon, or uh, for, um, for Saul, even though he died for the gospel to reject God and live in defiance of him would lead to vastly more suffering and pain. Not just in this life, but the life to come most prominently. So the words of Ecclesiastes are like goads. They're sharp and they're like nails. Do you know nails are sharp? Nidia and I know that very well because in, in our bedroom, on the, on the doorway to the bedroom, there are these nails that are supposed to be kind of holding the carpet there, but have kind of been exposed. And we step on those nails sometimes, and I will t testify that it is an unpleasant feeling to step on nails. And we go, we jump up, and we run into the bedroom. So nails hurt, and goads hurt. And I can testify to that. Both things are sharp, and that's what this compiler is saying about Ecclesiastes' words, or the preacher's words. They force you to move in the opposite direction. And that's what Ecclesiastes does to you. It, it foreshadows a life of despair based on a secular, 
self-fulfilling attitude in life, and it pricks you the other direction. The quest for reputation, the preacher said, is a striving after wind. What does that mean? You can't catch the wind. You can't grasp it. And so every time you ascend to one level of reputation, there's another one above it that you'll notice. You'll want more. Our life, another thing the preacher has said, our life is bound by times. We're born and we'll die. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And he talked about despair, the raw realities of aging. Um, and these truths sting. They don't feel, we don't like to think about that. But they are guiding. They sting, but they are guiding. I, I found it very interesting that the first week <laughs> I was talking about how <clears throat> chapter one, the, the basic essence of chapter one is check it out. Your, you, all your efforts are going to be forgotten. You're going to die, and only pictures of you will exist on some lonely corner of the Internet, and your great-grandchildren will not know your name. And a lot of you laughed, <laughs> because it does sound so depressing, but I think it's, it's very that laugh is an uncomfortable laugh almost. It comes from a discomfort from a reality. I don't know my great-grandparents' name. It is very likely that in 100 years, all of our names in this room will be forgotten. That's amazing. So that hurts, but it actually reorients you as well. So what, what is the thing that you are working towards now with the life that you have? Again, the preacher was smarter than us most likely, definitely more, more powerful than us, definitely more successful than us, and now he is writing as somebody who is older than us, probably everyone in this congregation. And what did he find? What's his conclusion about knowledge and the search for truth, the search for meaning in life? Verse 12, he says, my son or my son of, or of making many books there is no end and much study is weariness of the flesh essentially you'll never arrive at intellectual satisfaction in this life there will always be a cloud of unknowing things you are not aware of Things you would love to understand and grasp, but you don't fully understand. Here's a chapter 3, verse 11. said, God has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So eternity is in your hearts. Eternal longings for joy and truth is in your heart, but you cannot find it out fully. 
So, so you're dependent on revelation. If you're to know anything for sure, you're dependent on some kind of revelation from above. So in the pursuit of meaning, therefore, apart from God, is an endless quest that only produces more books and more questions. And I think our libraries are filled with man reasoning from his own, trying to, trying to find out more about reality from our point of view. And we've learned a lot. It's amazing what people can accomplish. But there are people in Paul's words who are always learning and who are never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So are you seeking for spiritual truth? That, yeah, are you someone that's seeking for spiritual truth? I know, I know most of you personally sitting right there. But in your heart of hearts, are you seeking for personal, for spiritual truth that may be beyond what you're being taught through Christ in the scriptures? Well, Ecclesiastes says you should end that quest and you should submit to God's revelation. Of making many books, there is no end. Much study is weariness of the flesh. He's saying, I did all of that. I've been there. Here's the conclusion I arrive at. Fear God and keep the commandments. You cannot, you will never come to a place of ultimate certainty in your quest for truth. And you cannot hold God at arm's distance while you weigh and reweigh the evidence. You cannot do that. That will be a life of vanity and waste. You must make a decision. You must make a leap of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What say you? What will you do with the Christ, the Son of God? Will you linger in indifference to him? Will you, will you be on the perpetual quest of verse 12? The making of many books and the weariness of the flesh that comes from constant spinning the wheels and never making the final decisive decision to repent and believe. There will always be questions for you. There will always be books unread. You will always have an uncertainty about your life. That will always exist. And it comes down to the choice to fear God and obey him or not. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep the commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. But not only is it your duty, but reckoning is coming. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Now, those of us who trust Jesus Christ and our Lord and Savior, our names are written in the book of life, we believe. And we will not be judged according to our works for salvation. But you will be judged according to your works for some kind of, some kind of reward. Some, God will give you something that will testify to how fruitful and meaningful your life was for the kingdom. And so as a Christian, yes, your deeds will be brought into judgment to see what you did with the talents that God had given you. When I'm, think, when I'm saying talents, I'm thinking of the parable of the talents. Remember there was this, the wicked and slothful servant who was guilty of premeditated uselessness who hid his talent in the sand, right? Didn't do anything with it. Didn't do anything with the message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom. I don't want anyone here to be like that. So, what, what, are you, what have you done with the Son? For those who do not have a full, repentant, and committed allegiance to Jesus Christ, the question will come down to your choice to believe or not. Let me read you a quote I read you the first week, but I think it's so good. He says, the situation, this is by Gavin Ortland. He says, the situation in, uh, in relation to the gospel is this. It is a message that concerns our infinite happiness and everlasting good in the world. It claims that our world has an author, a meaning, a struggle, and a hope. If anything, he writes, deserve to be longed for, it is that. If anything was ever important, it is this. What say you? He goes on. Are you almost convinced? Are you almost convinced? And would you give anything, as would I, for it to be true? Are you almost convinced? Are there still questions or pursuits in your life that you would like to give yourself to instead of Christ? Are you almost convinced? Would you give anything as would I for it to be true? Then believe. Give yourself to that belief as you give your heart to the one you love. In that posture, you will find certainty and you will find yourself. True faith is faith seeking understanding. You will not understand. God will refuse to give you full understanding so that you can choose to have faith. No way does it work like that. You believe in order to understand. You, you commit in order to know. And so Ecclesiastes within that frame is theology from below that points to above. What I mean is this, 
every other book of the Bible, it seems, starts with the reality of God. And look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a great place for you to existentially start your life. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 1, it's the man who meditates on God's word day and night. Matthew 1, the book, the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, this book ends, Ecclesiastes ends, Fear God and Keep the Commandments, where the rest of the Bible begins. Every other book in the Bible seems to begin with the reality of God and his truth. And so in that way, it reasons from below. It tests fulfillment, sensuality, success, intellectual pursuits, and says, that's, that's vanity. Fear God and keep the commandments. If you choose, if, and this would be a great way to, to do evangelism, I think. If you choose to go the route of Ecclesiastes, trying every avenue of of fulfillment out and holding God at arm's distance, whether through intellect or commitment, then what you're doing at the end of your life, you will have taken the long way to God. Because I think many people on their deathbeds begin to think about the divine and the afterlife and ultimate reality. Ecclesiastes has taken you the long way to God, starting from man, and then after finding everything has been meaningless. The old man here, right before the silver cord is snapped, says, fear God and keep the commandments. One of, one of my favorite atheists, I know that's a strange thing for a pastor to say, one of my favorite atheists was Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book called God is Not Great. And he was on the debate circuit, debating many people. You should watch his debate with William Lane Craig. I highly suggest that, but you know, on the debate circuit, just, just casting dispersions on the name. And he got lung cancer and died at the age of 62. And the very, the very it was, it's very interesting, and I find it a little, a little more than ironic that the very tool Christopher Hitchens used to defy God is the very thing that killed him. But there's, a, there's an interesting book out by a man named Larry Towton. I think it's called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, who I think debated Christopher Hitchens once and kept a relationship with him towards the end of his life, the last three years of his life. 
and he had private conversations with him for three years as Hitchens was dying of cancer. And in his book, he says this about Hitchens. He says his tone was marked by a sincerity that was not typical of a man, of the man, when he talked to him about God. A lifetime of rebellion against God had brought him to a moment where he was staring into the depths of eternity, teetering on the edge of belief. At the end of his life, Taunton says, at the end of his life, Christopher's search had brought him willingly, if not secretly, to the altar. Taunton writes that at the, at the end of the book that precisely what he did at the altar, no one knows there. But he does believe that Christopher Hitchens had a sincere reconsideration of God in Christ. I certainly hope he did receive repent and believe before the silver cord snapped. But if he did, he certainly took the long road to God. That was certainly the long way to go. I would hate to see anyone in this congregation take that same path. That's the path of Ecclesiastes. Fear God now and keep his commandments now. To fear God means to reverence him. And so, if you have been gleefully and blithely indifferent to God. Just, you know, yeah, God, you know, I believe in this, in this cheap, plastic American sense. And you have not made your life revolve around his word, prayer, his, the saints. Now is the time to fear God and keep his commandments. Until then, know that God will not give you an answer. And he will, you will always have a sense of uncertainty. And even Christians will always have questions and, and doubts. But, but faith, faith is constantly casting ourselves on Jesus Christ. Asking for the answers. Trusting. Trusting him, leaping towards faith, making the decision, the choice to believe in the midst of doubt. Like Abraham, who is told to sacrifice his son. The, the intensity of that. And right as he raises the knife, the angel of the Lord speaks for God and says, Now I know that you fear God. He made the choice. Satan said about Job, oh, if you stretch out his hand, your hand, and you touch his flesh, he will certainly curse you to his, your faith, for face. See, God allows us to go through tests in Deuteronomy. 
God said, I kept you in the wilderness, testing you to know what was in your heart. So Ecclesiastes recounts, I see a lot of it recounts this man, the preacher, probably Solomon, seeking to find answers to the meaning of life. And finally, he has led us to this firm conclusion, fear God and keep the commandments. In, in this book, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis has Psyche, this, this princess who has constantly been seeking, constantly been seeking for this shadowy figure and the meaning of all the experiences of her life, finally comes to the re this following realization at the end of the book, addressing this man who represents God. She says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer, because you yourself are the answer. Before you, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? What a beautiful and accurate depiction of entering glory. Your questions will fade away. He is the answer. God is the answer. So fear him now instead of taking the long way to God. Your existential questions will be endless. Your desire for fulfillment will constantly haunt you as a fallen creature. And if you choose to live the, this life of Ecclesiastes, the long way to God, you will constantly feel this, the feelings of emptiness and that climbing the ladder, you will realize there is always another rung above you. Fear God now and keep his commandments. That is the thing we've learned from Ecclesiastes. And honestly, speaking honestly, I have, I have, as a pastor, I want to encourage you in Jesus Christ. I want, to I want to teach you how to be disciples. And so sometimes, some weeks, I've struggled with Ecclesiastes because I feel like I want to get on with it already. I want to get on to discipleship. I want to get on to... New covenant realities already. But the one thing Ecclesiastes has allowed you to do is feel raw realities. And, and understand that those are part of life. And now in this last final phase, this last step of Ecclesiastes, I plead with you to make the choice now to reorient your life around God. The God whom you know the God whom you say you believe. Reorient your life around him now rather than taking the long way. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard words of Ecclesiastes. They are